This is Invest Like a Honeybee, the podcast where you learn to be smart with your money and invest wisely. Before we get started, please remember that this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. I'm not an investment advisor. Please make sure you discuss any changes to your portfolio with your registered advisors. I may continue to hold stocks I discuss in this podcast or not, depending on when you listen to this podcast. This is about Invest Like a Honeybee. I'm Henry J. Speck. Let's get started. Today I have a very special guest in Adam Carroll. When they first reached out to me as they talk about, they I didn't believe it was really Adam Carroll because he, he did a world-famous video with over 6 million views about playing Monopoly with his children. The interview was so compelling, uh, it went well over the half hour, so I broke it up into two clips. The first episode is this week, and the final episode is next week. So enjoy Adam Carroll and I just talking about a lot of money stuff. Enjoy. Thanks for joining. Hey, listen, I I watched your video year, uh, probably a year ago. So when she reached out to me, I thought, man, this is weird because this is 6 million views. So why don't you start by, <laughs> I love the story because we don't play Monopoly at my house anymore because we had too many scraps. I have three boys who are all grown up now and we're not allowed to play Monopoly or even talk about it. Yeah. So, because they say I, some of us like me don't play fair and all that stuff. So anyway, oh, why course. don't you tell us how you got to the Monopoly thing and then we'll go back a little bit and then we'll push forward to, I know you got the shred method and all these cool things. But why don't you yeah. start with the with the video at 6 million plus views? Yeah, it's kind of insane even to this day to think about the fact that 6 million people have seen me tell a story about playing a game of Monopoly with my kids. Great story. Um, well, and and the the maybe the context around the story is we had been a game, we are a game playing family. We love to play ball games, dice games, card games, you know, uh, there's a dart board in our basement. So if we're watching games, we're playing darts, you know, there, there's always games going on. But when my kids were little, they loved to play Monopoly. And I had been doing a lot of speaking on college campuses. And what I was finding was the students I was talking to on these college campuses did not perceive money as real. It was sort of like, well, the money exists, but I don't really need to know anything about it because I won't start paying on it for another four or five years anyway. Right. And then watching my kids play Monopoly, I, it occurred to me, they just wanted to roll the dice and move the pieces. They, the money was irrelevant to them as well. And so I kind of tied the two ideas together that maybe what was happening was we were raising kids in an environment where money isn't real. They have no tangible uh, handling of it, if you will, on an, on an you know everyday basis. And what would it look like if they did? So I, I, you know, used that philosophy or that idea, um, and brought it to the next Monopoly game by going and getting ten thousand dollars in cash and put it on the kitchen table. That was real ten grand. I saw that. I thought, is this is this real ten grand? It was real. It was. What the bank say? Did you tell the bank what you were doing? They must have thought you were something a little. Oh, young. they thought I was nuts. In fact, when I went into it was a credit union that I was banking at, <laughs> and I went into the teller and I said, "Hey, I need all of these denominations of bills." And it should total up to $9,900. And I was told, don't go ask for 10 grand because you'll have to fill out all this right. IRS paperwork. Yeah. And so I did. I just asked for $9,900 in these various denominations of bills. And all of the tellers, Henry, came around and they're all like, where, what are you doing with this money? Where is this going? And you know, that's a bigger tell than the 10 G's now because they think people go to different banks and get 9,900, right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> so... So I, you know, I 
let them in on the secret. I'm playing a game of Monopoly. And they said, oh, you have to come back and tell us what happened. Um, but that that was kind of the origin of the story. And then I knew that I wanted to talk about the experience, but I didn't know it was going to become a TED Talk. And then I started going back and forth with the folks at the London Business School. And they said, well, what ideas do you have? And I said, I have this thing that I've been kicking around, the idea that money isn't real today. Uh, and, and there's a lot around you know, money being fiat currency and those kinds of things. But more so to the point, when when all money is transacted digitally, it changes the way we interact with it. So it's very abstract. And that was the ultimately the message that made it to, to Ted. What were you doing at the time? Were you a professor? Like, what, tell me a little bit about what you were doing. Like, what was your job? I, you know, I had made my living as a professional speaker since around 2012. Wow. And I had owned a mortgage company. I had uh, kind of dabbled in doing financial literacy programming for colleges and universities. Um, that eventually led me into doing work with banks and credit unions. But largely, I was going out and teaching money philosophies. And um, uh, in the in the midst of that, I knew that I wanted to continue to elevate my speaking game. And at the time, I was doing large associations and events and conferences. And a friend of mine said, what's next? And I said, I think I want to do a TED Talk. And he goes, well, how are you going to do that? I said, I have no idea, but I know I'll figure it out. And um, lo and behold, uh, it's kind of a funny story, Henry. I, at the bottom of my email, below the signature line, I had a double dash line and I had written, it is my dream to one day grace a TED stage. If you know someone who could help me do that, I would be forever in your debt. What year was this? Adam? This was 2014. Okay, so it was pretty hot then. TED, TED Talks were really going crazy then. TED, TEDx events were starting to spring up all over the place. Uh, the actual TED.com event is hard to get. TEDx's were a little bit easier. Mm -hmm. um, but within about six months, I had been offered two TEDx events. One was at uh, a state university in, in uh, Wisconsin. And then the second one I got offered was the London Business School. So I jumped on that opportunity. And this, your proposal was to do the Monopoly game. That's right. That's pretty cool because everybody can can relate to that, right? Like I just started by saying our Monopoly experience. That, do you still play Monopoly with your kids? You know, we have not played in a long time. My kids got to be teenagers and they were less enthralled with sitting for four hours playing a board game. <laughs> Sure. Uh, though, though my my sixteen year old did say the next time everyone's home, Dad, because I have two in college, he goes the next time everyone's home, let's play a ten thousand dollar game. Of would you ever use it with real money? Would you ever do real money again? Oh, for sure. I think it's the only way I would play today. Wow. Okay. I want to see. I want to test it again. Like, how are we going to play this if we're playing with real cash? Maybe you can get a group of adults into a room and play and see Wouldn't how it? brutal it gets for the ten grand, right? Totally. So tell me back, if you could, your earliest, I'd like to find out about your experience, exposure to money when you're just growing up. Because that's, you know, yeah. I, I I was into that parenting. I still am into the parenting stuff and in the sense of understanding it. And I call it the sponge factor. We seem to soak in what's around us when we're growing up. I know there's mm. different terms for that. But I almost call it a sponge because it, even if you fight it, it yeah. eventually gets in your brain. You can hate totally. it later because you're just like mom or dad or whoever raised you. So totally. tell me about your early money experiences. Well, I was an entrepreneur from a very young age. And and I think my I think my parents, they did a good job of of um nurturing that, of fostering that. But the one memory I have, candidly, Henry, is 
Um, I remember we lived in California at the time and I had made a cake on the side of a, uh, of a Hershey's can, you know, they have the recipe for a chocolate cake and I had made the cake with my sister. She gave me a lot of credit about how much work I did on it. And a neighbor had shown up and, and was just, you know, going over the top about how wonderful this cake was. And, oh my gosh, Adam, I think I'd like to buy one of these cakes. Would you make me one? And, and, and I had it in my mind that she was going to pay me to make this cake. So I sold my neighbor a cake and then I sold another one to another what neighbor. What did you charge for the first cake? What was, was seven dollars? Wow, what did it cost you to make? Uh well, my dad you? did charge me for the <laughs> materials. So it was my first lesson in profit. But I think I made five dollars or something nice. like that. He he charged me nice. two for the, the goods. Um, but I was hooked. And from then on I thought about how to how to be an entrepreneur and how to make money. And I'd always had a taste for how to make it. Um, but I think the sponge factor for me was growing up and seeing my parents go to work every day. And particularly, I have a memory where my dad was about to be laid off from a job and it was a it, Massey Ferguson combine corporation was who he was working for. And it was one of the largest combine manufacturers in the country. And they, they went bankrupt and it was kind of an immediate bankruptcy. My dad lost his job. And I remember my mom saying, Oh, your dad's having a hard time at work, but we could be out of a house. I mean, it was like, he'll, he'll no longer have a job and we'll be out of a house. And she did it in three steps. How old were you? I think I was probably eight or nine at the time. Wow. And I remember thinking, I never want that to happen for me. I'm never going to rely on a job to cover my, my expenses. And I think that's part of the reason that today I'm very entrepreneurial. Um, I have not had a, a standard paycheck from a company in years. And, um, and today I, you know, I will talk to them about it. And I said, here's what was going on in my young mind. And they were like, oh my gosh, that was the farthest thing from what was happening. But at nine, I equated working a job with someone has control over whether or not you'll have a home. And today, you know, that's part of the reason I'm entrepreneurial, part of the reason for the shred method. I mean, I credit my young experience to who I am today and what I'm doing today. Do you ever worry, though, that you, you don't, you know, I mean, I'm sure we're, we're getting a little bit, I don't know how much you want to disclose, but are you into real estate? Do you have income without, like, well, let me ask you this one, because this is, yes. this one, one, yep. one of the questions I have is, how do you define wealth or being rich? Mm, great question. That will help me understand where we're at today. Yeah, wealth for me is a measure of time. And when I think about wealth, there's there's kind of two lines that I might draw around wealth. One bucket, if you will, that wealth fits in is if your current income stopped tomorrow, how long could you live your current existing lifestyle? And it ultimately is a little bit of the retirement question, right? People want to know, I have X amount, it'll last me for the rest of forever if I just live on this amount of money. And for me, that's more of a I want to know that my wealth will last the next 30 years or 50 years or however long it's going to be if I were to live my current existing lifestyle for the rest of forever. The other measure of wealth for me is passive income. And that is how much of my passive income or wealth is being created without me having to work for it. And what's the, what is the, the delta between how much do I have available and how much is my passive income stream? Because if I can cover my monthly expenses with that, then technically I'm wealthy. I'm financially free. Do you and do real estate or dividends or what do you do? I do a little bit of both. I mean, I learned from Robert Kiyosaki years ago that there are cash flow investors and there are net worth investors. 
And I would consider myself to be more of a cash flow investor because my goal is to create massive, passive, permanent streams of income. You know, do the work once and get paid, get paid, get paid, get paid, get paid. So do you own buildings or REITs? Let me get specific. What, what, what are you into? REITs, um, syndications. I really like syndications because I'm hands off. I get a K-1 at the end of the year. Um, I still get the benefit of owning real estate. I get the cash flow, but I don't have to deal with any of the headaches on the legal side or the tenant side. Let me ask you something that came out of your Monopoly game because you talked about tokens versus real cash. And there's this such a push in the world in Canada. Now you're in Chicago today, right? Uh, near. I'm in Iowa. So I'm right. west of Chicago. Yeah. Oh, you're in Iowa, the state of yep. Iowa? The state of Iowa. Wow. Are you on a farm? I am not. I'm in. I'm. I'm a city kid in Iowa. Believe it or not, <laughs> you got kids, grandkids. Well, you obviously you got kids. Grandkids. Kids, I got three kids. Twenty, nope. eighteen, and sixteen. Wow. So in that game, you talked about the token nature and not understanding money. I, I wondered what you think of the push that seems to be, you know, governments and company, uh, sorry, countries getting rid of cash that we all. Yeah. You're younger than I am, but I love sometimes to feel. I, I just. went to the bank to get a bit totally. um, whereas now they're saying soon there will be none of that it'll all be right. digital what are your thoughts and what will that do to spending i mean if everything's digital yeah. how will we ever teach cash to anyone i think that's that's the big question right henry the challenge with everything going digital um number one great there's all sorts of positives right i mean we'll, we'll have uh constant tracking mechanisms the whole blockchain uh, technology is all about tracking, you know, all of the transactions down the blockchain. So we'll be able to, to monitor and measure every dollar that's spent. That's on the positive side. The negative side is that psychologically speaking, when we hand over a $50 bill, a pain sensor fires in our brain because it feels like this is loss. I'm, I'm losing money to hand over this 50 or $100 bill. Yet, if you click one click ship on Amazon for $47, a pleasure sensor goes off in your brain and says, yay, I'm in, in positive anticipation of getting this thing on my doorstep. And if everything goes digital and we're paying with our watch or our phone, or you know, at some point probably our mind or a chip in our palm or whatever it's gonna be, um, we lose that sense of really tracking pleasure versus pain in spending money. So it all just becomes transactional and people will start to lose track of how much they're spending. And I think that's the biggest fear I have for the future, particularly young people, is you get to a point where everything is done in Venmo or Zelle or PayPal or, or Cash App, and they start to lose the sense of how much they actually have. And then it doesn't really matter. And the challenge is it really does matter. Like when we make money decisions, these are very real decisions that have very real forward-looking tangible results and if we're not trained in a way to handle money tangibly then all that stuff just kind of goes away and i, and I'm, I am fearful for what that looks like in the future so if you're if you had a, your children were four or five and six today how would you yeah. overcome the whole you know i was really paranoid when you just had to scan your credit card if it's less than 100 bucks or 200 bucks or something totally. how do you how you how what would you do what strategies can you tell young uh, young parents to deal with yeah. if they have a young child I did a, I actually built a course around this called Raising Kids Who Thrive With Money. 
okay. because I wanted my children to be financially solvent by the age of 18. Actually, I wanted them there by 14. <laughs> um, and what I, what I mean by that is like able to stand on their own two feet financially, make great decisions, understand how money works, understand how investments work, et cetera. And so the way we did that and the way I would encourage uh, you know, families to do that is you need to get money in your children's hands, tangible dollars as early as humanly possible, like five years of age. And whether you know it or not, your children at five have a fundamental understanding of wants and needs. The challenge is that if you, if you protect and preserve the ability to make all of their financial decisions for them, all they will think is that money is free flowing and ever abundant. And you're just being mean to me and trying to control me because you won't give me what I want at target. And so what we started doing is saying, you have $5 a week. That is what you have to spend. And we have money that goes into a save jar and an invest jar and a give jar. And then there's yours to spend. And so when we were at Target and they said, I want these $20 Legos or I want this Nerf gun. And we would say, it's $40. So how much do you have with you? Well, I didn't bring my wallet. Sorry, too bad, so sad. Like I carry my wallet, your, mo your mom carries her wallet. If you think we're gonna go shopping, you need to carry your wallet with you. So we, got, we did away with instant gratification. Um, we would never loan them money. Please, can I get $20? I'll pay you back in four weeks when I get my allowance. That's not how this works because then I, I become the bank. So put money in your kids' hands and slowly but surely over time, what they'll do is they'll increase their savings to an amount that's, we set goals, what, what I would call habits, but the habit was you're going to have $500 in an emergency fund at all times. From the age of nine onward, you'll always have $500 in an emergency fund. And then slowly but surely, they had 500, they wanted to get to 1,000, and then 2,000, and then 5,000. And when you have teenagers who are thinking, 10 grand is not a lot of money, you know, it's doable for me. They are fully prepared to go out and make 50 and $100. So you and do the same thing today that you did back then, which was the absolutely. allowance, the, the, save, the, the jars, the postponed gratification, all the things 100%. that are necessary to be successful. Yep. And how do you send that message to parents? Because I see... You know, I don't go to fast food, thankfully, but when I used to sit there and watch parents, Dad, it's so impossible. And I write this in that in that book that if you can't do it because you don't have the money, it's a lot easier than if you can do it and have the money and say no. And most parents today yes. can do it, and it's almost impossible for them to say no. Whereas yeah. when our kids were growing up in Canada here, we didn't have money for hockey. Right. So when my son said, I want to pass, sorry, I don't have the dough. I didn't yeah. want to play hockey anyway, but we really didn't have the money because it's like at that time, I think it was four or 5,000 per kid per year, which we just yeah. couldn't do. So, so, but when you have the money to buy that toy at Target or whatever, yep. what do you tell parents about saying no to that? Because you can do it. It's not a big deal. Yeah. Well, we have, it is very hard to do. I, I'll, I will uh, honor that. I meant, sorry, I meant sure. buying it's easy, not saying no, not saying no. No, to exactly. Buying's exactly. Yeah, go buying ahead. it's easier. Buying it's easier than saying no. And um, I was going to do a program on this years ago, and a friend of mine said, "You haven't been a parent long enough, and set, you know, set enough of an example to be the leader in this, you know, from a thought leader perspective." But I, I always maintain that kids need to hear two things from their parents routinely. They need to hear no, and they need to hear "I love you." And those two things, when said powerfully and strongly the yes becomes that much more of a, de a big deal. 
But, so, but you and I both know, sorry, but you and I both know today, if you hire people, the first time they might hear no is when they hire, when when they come and work for you. They, they, they've had everything all their life. Yep. Yep. It's very true. Um, and, and here's what I would say that if you are wanting to raise a child who will likely have credit card debt in their teenage years or twenties and may rely on you financially for the rest of your life, tell them yes to everything they've ever wanted because they'll assume that they can get everything they've ever wanted. So tell me, I, I've had a lot of mistakes, hundreds of mistakes, financial sure. mistakes. Some of them I talk about, some I'm too embarrassed to talk about. <laughs> yeah. I put one out next week where I lost 75 grand in an, an um, uh, angel fund recently. And I tell that story and my ice cream mistakes and so on. So my question yeah. to you is, what was your um, toughest mistake that you learned the most from when it comes to investing? I have, well, there, man, where do I begin? <laughs> uh, We're okay. We have time here. <laughs> one of my friends always said that, you know, the reason that, that most people succeed is they've just failed more times than most people have tried. <laughs> That's right. And, and so, you know, some of failure is, is uh, picking yourself back up again and going, getting back in the saddle, so to speak uh, on investments. You know, my worst was probably a property that I bought and I bought it at an auction Oh. And to this day, my wife will hold that one over my head because <laughs> I I had I had brought her two dozen roses at lunch, Henry, and I did it just because I think they were on sale, and I was like, this will be a nice gesture, and I'll bring some flowers home to my wife. And she she's like, you're buttering me up for something. I said, no, no, I just wanted to bring you flowers, and and I said, I am going to this auction. I just want to see how it you know how it flows, and so on and so forth. Well, we got caught up in the bidding, and the gentleman I was there bidding with. And we said, if we get a great deal, everyone will be happy. Don't worry about it. But we did not do our due diligence prior to the bidding starting, nor did we know how savvy some of the other folks around us were and got caught up in the moment. And, you know, it was, we bought a $160,000 home, uh, you know, on the steps of the home and we had to put 10% down that night. So I wrote an $8,000 check and then had to come home and tell my wife about it. And uh, my partner put in eight grand, we put in eight grand. That property hung around our neck like an albatross for the next five years. Oh, and and it was one of those deals where you know partnership issues, dealing with challenges at the house, time spent away from family, and but what it taught me it was a very expensive lesson around time and money. But what it taught me was do your homework, do your due diligence, go in prepared, know what you're investing in, and I never made that mistake again. Every property I went into. From that point forward, I had researched thoroughly. I had talked to, to mentors and guides around it. I knew the numbers through and through. So I think sometimes those those investments, while hard losses, are also really important lessons. Well, let, let's go back before it's too too good now. Tell me a little yep. bit about those five years of hell. Like, oh was it a, was it going to be a rental, a flip? Like, what was your it was intention? A rental. Well, it was going to be. It was intended to be a flip, I think, initially, because we thought, oh, this place is worth 190 to 200, no problem. We'll put 10 or 15 in, we'll make 25 and walk away. You have heroes. skills? Like, can you swing a hammer? Uh, I, I cannot swing a hammer, but I know enough to be dangerous when it comes to the aesthetics of a place. No, like, I knew how to make the place look nice, right? Okay, okay. So you what don't I, you don't have any skills really. I have no skills. <laughs> Sorry, I have no skills. <laughs> so you pay. Hang on, you pay one hundred sixty. Yep. What were interest walk, rates at the time? Uh, interest rates weren't bad. I mean, I think 
Well, I mean, it's relative today, right? But it was probably yeah. 6%. So you got you got financing from a bank? They yeah, actually got the money. financing from a bank that was happy as a claim to give us the money. Okay. Um, we, we had, I think we had negotiated for the first two months. It was going to be more like a, an interest only construction sure. loan. Sure. And then we thought we were going to flip it and be well on our way. Well, here's the story where things get, go south, Henry. We walk in on the first day we own it. The, the water is turned on for the first time because they had shut it down, right? Complete foreclosure. I hate to leave it there, but we're going to have to hang on till next week to, to hear the rest of this episode about what happened with this uh, first home purchase and further lessons from Adam Carroll. Remember to go to investlikeahoneybee.com and register for my weekly newsletter, which will get you a free digital copy of my book, What Grandpa Learned from His Honeybees, a little book to be smart with your money and help the environment. We'll see you next week with my final part to the interview with Adam Carroll. Can't wait. Have a great one.